Good afternoon. Um, I'm Edward Luce, US financial editor, uh, editor of the Financial Times. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be here for what I guess is the last full panel of this fantastic conference. The, the, the parts of it I've seen at least have been really fantastic. And I, I think it's fair to say that um, with uh, Biden probably announcing the new Fed chair or reaffirming um, the existing one in the next day or two, that the timing of this is really, is really ideal. It's also probably fair to say that whoever he does nominate, uh, will probably not be a populist um, of, of left or, or right, um, let alone an, an adherent of, of modern monetary um, theory. Now, I first heard of MMT several years ago when Jeremy Corbyn, the then leader of the Labour Party, endorsed it. Um, and uh, I'm always keen to learn more about it. I'm not a monetary economist and I don't directly cover the Fed, unlike I think most of the journalist moderators today. Um, so I'm, I'm here really to pose the naive, ingenuous questions uh, that, that non-specialists might um, have. Though I think it's probably fair to say that even the specialists on this panel and that you've heard throughout today um, would have been surprised uh, if they'd been told a few years ago that the Fed's balance sheet would be $9 trillion and that interest rates would be, real interest rates would be something roughly around uh, minus um, 5%. I think two things are probably clear. One, the sort of populist pressure on institutions, including the Fed, um, in, this, in this very polarized climate are not going to go uh, away. And as we approach you know, a, a turn in the monetary cycle, um, already in it, arguably, um, and what looks likely to be um, quite a severe fiscal crunch in the US over the next year to 18 months, uh, I doubt that those populist pressures, including from the left, particularly if, if the Democrats lose control of Capitol Hill next year, I doubt those populist pressures are, are going to subside. So this is a great moment to discuss helicopter money um, and fiscal QE. And we have a great panel um, to present uh, what I think are going to be quite sharply varying views um, on, on this subject. Now, unfortunately, it looks like because of a family emergency that Robert Hockett will be unable uh, to join us. That, that might change, but I think it's unlikely. So we're, we wish him um, all, all the best. Um, the, the three panelists um, that, that we do have starting, I guess, in order in which they will speak. We have Bill Nelson, who's the executive vice president and chief e economist of the Bank Policy Institute. We have Francis Coppola, who's a well-known exponent of, of uh, modern monetary theory and, and economist. Um, and finally, we have Kevin Dowd, Professor of, of Finance and Economics at Durham University. Um, I, I, I guess if you could stick to roughly 15 minutes um, each with your talks, that would be ideal. And, and I'll start um, with, with, with Bill Nelson, um, if I may, Bill. Thank you, Edward. And I want to thank Jim Dorn and George Selgin for the invitation to speak in this excellent uh, conference today. So my remarks are going to weave together seven different things. Helicopter money, the Fed's magic asset, fiscal QE, CBDC, the potential for the Fed to make large losses, the legal requirement that the Fed collateralize the currency, 
and the possibility that the Fed could lose control of monetary policy. One common thread between all seven things is the moral hazard for the Fed and the rest of the government caused by the Fed's floor system for conducting monetary policy. As Cato's George Selgin has diligently cautioned us, one of the major problems with the Federal Reserve's floor system is that it weakens the ability of the Fed to resist political pressure to use its balance sheet for fiscal purposes. In a corridor system like the Fed and most major central banks previously used, the Fed's assets could not exceed the public's demand for currency by much, or the Fed would create reserve balances that exceeded banks' demand for reserves, and the federal funds rate would fall below the FOMC's target. Under a floor system, the Fed no longer has that polite excuse to decline requests that it purchase assets, or as I will discuss, create liabilities in pursuit of broader social objectives. So although Milton Friedman first raised the idea of helicopter money, it has been more closely associated with Ben Bernanke since he discussed the idea in a speech in November, 2002. In a recent Brookings blog post, Bernanke provides the following simple example of how helicopter money could be used to create inflation, even if the Fed's other tools were not working. The Fed credits the Treasury's general account with money and the Treasury uses the money to fund a tax cut and an increase in expenditures. The credit, a liability on the Fed's balance sheet created without purchasing an asset, drives the Fed's equity negative by a like amount. Key to both the effectiveness and legality of the idea, the Fed has, has to never expect the money back. The Fed could proceed indefinitely with negative equity or it could create an asset to boost its equity equal to the present value of seniorage, similar to how banks account for mortgage servicing rights. If the latter approach sounds preposterous to you, it shouldn't. The Fed already plans to book an asset, officially called the deferred asset, but commonly called the magic asset, if it, makes, if it made losses so that its capital would not go negative. The magic asset reflects future profits that the Fed would retain rather than remit to Treasury to make up for current losses. While this coordinated action between the Fed and Congress to stimulate the economy described by Bernanke seems unlikely, it is less hard to imagine the Fed using exactly the same action to avoid an imminent catastrophe. In particular, if Congress does not lift the debt ceiling in the next few weeks and the country is on the brink of default, the Fed could use helicopter money to provide the government the money it needed to avoid default. The Fed would simply credit the Treasury's general account with whatever amount was seen as necessary, say $500 billion. The plan would get around the debt limit because even though Fed liabilities minus assets is clearly net borrowing by the federal government, the amount is not included in federal debt. Of course, this is a horrible idea. If the Fed used this approach once to avoid a federal default, Congress would realize that the Fed could do it again and do it perpetually. It is difficult to see why Congress would ever take the painful step of raising the debt ceiling again. But if the alternative to the helicopter drop is to default on the debt, something that could cause a US and global recession and destroy the dollar's hegemony, the action is not inconceivable. So in a simple and delicious recipe for mushroom soup, the late Anthony Bourdain said of dribbling on a little truffle oil, why the hell not? Everyone else is doing it. In the same spirit, I'll dribble in a remark on central bank digital currency. 
As Saulay Amarova observes in the People's Ledger, one way or another, CBDC involves people and businesses having accounts at the Fed, and those accounts would allow for the ex execution of something like the public's idea of helicopter money. In extremists, she proposes that the Fed could credit the accounts of the underprivileged and of firms in distressed industries to stimulate the economy and temporarily debit the accounts of the wealthy and larger corporations to slow the economy. But it's the asset side rather than the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet that offers the most scope for achieving societal objectives. For example, in the People's Ledger, Amarova states that the Fed should extend discount window loans to qualified lending institutions that would, in turn, lend to productive enterprises and not socially suboptimal speculative activities. The Fed would also buy the debt of a national investment authority that would finance large-scale transformative public infrastructure projects, such as high-speed rail lines and a green energy network. A bit more circumspect, in March 2021, the Network for Greening the Financial System, which the Fed joined earlier this year, stated that central banks should modify their existing operations to help fight climate change by buying securities of green firms and favoring green bank loans as discount window collateral. While the NGFS is currently only recommending that central banks adjust their existing operations, with the Fed's balance sheet unbounded and the objective pure, the next step is obvious. For example, several years ago, the proponents of the Green New Deal indicated that the package could be financed entirely by the Fed printing money. In good old-fashioned QE, the Fed purchases longer-term treasuries and agency MBS to push down longer-term rates and stimulate the economy in essentially the same way it stimulates the economy by reducing short-term interest rates. However, by financing its investments in longer-term securities with short-term debt, the Fed is taking on a tremendous amount of interest rate risk. To get an idea of how much risk, I developed a simple model of the Fed's balance sheet and income and ran through it a stressful, although not totally implausible scenario. The model of Fed income and losses uses data on yields and maturity distributions from the Fed's weekly balance sheet statement and from the New York Fed's annual report on open market operations, but no data on individual securities. The details of the projection will be provided in the paper version of these remarks that Cato will publish. The Fed's assets are treasury bills that earn the overnight rate, which I assume equals the interest on reserve balances rate, treasury notes that earn 2% with maturities distributed evenly between two and 17 years, and MBS that earn 3% with current duration and convexity. The Fed's liabilities are currency and non-interest bearing deposits that grow 5% a year. The treasury's general account, which is constant at $500 billion, and reserve balances and overnight reverse repurchase agreements, which are defined as assets minus liabilities and earn the IRB rate. In this scenario, I consider the FOMC tapers its asset purchases following the plan it announced a few weeks ago, ending in June, 2022. By then it finds that inflation has risen durably to 4%. To reduce inflation, when balance sheet expansion ends, the Fed stops reinvesting principal payments, allowing its balance sheet to decline and starts to raise interest rates. It raises the federal funds rate 50 basis points each meeting to 6%, concluding in December, 2023. A 6% target federal funds rate is high by the standards of recent decades, 
but it's not unreasonable to consider as a stress case when the Fed is taking action to reduce inflation. Although Fed officials often note that they have the tools to reduce inflation, they really have essentially only one tool, tighten monetary policy so that GDP grows more slowly than trend and the unemployment rate rises above the Nehru. If the Fed needed to create one percentage point of monetary restraint, inflation expectations had risen to 4% and our star is 1%, then it would need a nominal federal fund rate of 6%. With interest expense rising rapidly as the IORB rate climbs and interest income edging down as the balance sheet shrinks, the Fed begins to start losing money by the middle of 2023. By December 2023, the Fed is losing $9 billion every FOMC period, following its plan when it makes a loss that would otherwise reduce its capital below zero, the Fed adds to the magic asset instead. By the end of 2023, the magic asset equals $18 billion. With the Fed losing money for the foreseeable future and those losses seemingly being caused by the Fed writing extremely large checks to big banks, suppose Congress took away the Fed's ability to pay interest on reserve balances. In order to conduct monetary policy, the Fed would need to rapidly shrink reserve balances down to the level demanded by banks when the opportunity cost of those balances is 6%. Banks would switch to satisfying their liquidity requirements using treasury securities to the fullest extent possible. The Fed would have a problem though. Its portfolios of treasuries and MBS would, would each have unrealized losses of about 20%. Consequently, as the Fed sold its securities, each dollar par value sold would only result in an 80 cent decline in reserve balances. The 20 cent realized loss would boost the magic asset. But therein lies the rub. Section 16 of the Federal Reserve Act states that the Federal Reserve must maintain assets to collateralize the currency. As amended in 2003, the statute states that the collateral can be securities and discount window loans and 13-3 loans and any other asset of a Federal Reserve Bank. While any other asset seems unequivocal, a critical question is whether it applies to magical assets. If the Fed can include an asset simply created to prevent its equity from going negative, then the currency collateralization requirement is meaningless. Suppose the magic asset would not count towards collateralizing the $2.5 trillion in currency projected to be outstanding as of December in 2023. Suppose further that the Fed had to have assets with a fair value, not a book value, at least equal to the amount of currency, as seems consistent with the language in the statute. <clears throat> then, if the Fed sold all of the assets it was legally allowed to sell, realizing over $800 billion in losses, there would still be $730 billion in reserve balances outstanding. If that amount was higher than what was demanded by the banking system, if it fully economized on its holdings, interest rates would fall to zero. The Fed would have lost control of monetary policy. To recap, the Fed's floor system for monetary policy leaves it open to greater political pressure that it used its liabilities in the form of helicopter money and assets in the form of fiscal QE to achieve societal objectives. 
And relatedly, the Fed's expanded balance sheet, funded mostly with short-term borrowing, leaves the Fed exposed to significant interest rate risk. So much risk that if inflation remains elevated, the Fed may have to conjure up its magic asset to cover losses and eventually even have to decide between, being, uh, between meeting its legal requirement to collateralize the currency and maintaining control of monetary policy. To date, the Fed has only used its balance sheet to achieve monetary policy objectives, but pressure is building. And the stress scenario I sketched out is still one with low probability. If the Fed can continue to resist pressure to use its balance sheet for fiscal purposes, can tighten interest rates gradually while still guiding inflation to its 2% objective, and can avoid selling assets, everything may work out fine. Thank you, Edward, back to you. Thank you uh, very much, Bill. Um, that's um, set up nicely for Francis to um, talk next, um, but I should mention that, um, I should have mentioned at the beginning um, that uh, the audience should pose questions with the hashtag Cato Moncon, uh, C-A-T-O, capital M-O-N, capital C-O-N, um, through the chat boxes on YouTube, Facebook, Slido, and Twitter. And I will pick up those um, questions and, and um, direct them to the panel uh, or to whichever panelist is specified after the presentation. So um, Francis, uh, your, I suspect, very differing perspective. Yes, I imagine it might be. I have just a handful of slides actually, uh, mainly to give people something to look at so they don't have to keep looking at my face. Um, so um, if you'll bear with me a minute, I'm just going to share my screen. Um, there we go. Looks promising. And come on. Right, there we go. Sorry about that. That took me a few minutes. Um, yes, I've um, taken the liberty of putting some helicopters up because I thought you'd like to look at them. So here's a helicopter with some money. Um, it's actually taken from, I, I need to correct what Edward first said about me, actually, because I've, I've, I'm only a slightly um, a supporter of MMT. There are things I agree with and things I don't. So, um, and I, some of what I'm going to say today actually is not what MMT says. So, um, which will no doubt confuse everybody. Um, what I'm going to say today actually follows on from a little missive that I wrote a couple of years ago, which was remarkably good timing. Um, I actually wrote a book on people's quantitative easing, um, in, uh, which was published in May 2019 in the UK and the EU, September 2019 in the United States, and then translated into Korean and published with impeccable timing in February 2020, right on cue for the world to go straight into a pandemic and start talking massively about helicopter money. Um, and all of a sudden, almost everybody was finding ways of, of discussing everything that was in my book. Um, and I was going, but it's not the right time. Because at the time we, we, I, when I, that I was writing the book, I envisaged helicopter money um, and um, fiscal QE, the use of, of central bank money to finance governments. I don't like the term fiscal QE very much. To be used to kickstart an economy, get it out of recession, 
um, stimulate demand, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, risk a bit of inflation, but hopefully, you know, demand lack supply and it'll catch up later and you don't overuse it, right? Um, and here we were going into a pandemic where governments were actually shutting economies down and we were using, calling for exceptional central bank support to enable governments to keep people alive and mothball businesses during an extended shutdown of the economy. And that's very, very different from anything that I envisaged. And so my remarks really are going to be concerned with how this experiment has panned out um, and what I think we need to learn from them. And also a bit of a warning really that it's not over yet. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about what helicopter money is, because I think it, it gets talked about in many different ways. And I want to define it precisely um, the way I do in the book about what I mean by helicopter money. Because for me, there are two forms of um, central bank support of governments. One is helicopter money and the other is actual central bank um, financing of government expenditure. And they're two different things. So when I talk about helicopter money, I'm using it in Friedman's terms, which is why I've put the quote up there about the helicopter um, dropping dollar bills over Manhattan um, and his important caveat that this is a one-off event which will not be repeated and that is very important with helicopter money it can't be repeated things it's got to be things that will happen only once or only a few times and then stop so helicopter money is one-off drops to money of money to households and businesses that are directly or indirectly financed by the central banks um, fiscal authorities can of course do fiscal handouts, one-offs, which are financed by borrowing or even by taxing some part of the population you don't want to give the money to. But these are re redistributive. They don't involve creation of new money. If um, a bank borrows money from the market, it's redistributing money from investors to households and businesses. This is not creation of new money. So it's not strictly a helicopter drop in that sense. So I have regarded that as a fiscal as welfare policy, fiscal policy, rather than a helicopter drop. Um, um, at the present time, and this was true all the way through the pandemic, um, central banks actually can't distribute helicopter money. They don't have access to household and business bank accounts, and they don't hold distribution information such as names and addresses. Helicopter money is therefore always and everywhere distributed by fiscal authorities. We could say that central banks create the helicopters payload but the fiscal authorities actually fly the helicopters and decide where to drop it. And for this reason, helicopter at the moment is subject to political whims. It's not simply a monetary policy tool. So following the lead of the previous speaker, I'm just going to slide in here a little mention of a CBDC, because were central banks to introduce a central bank digital currency, that could be used as a vehicle for distributing money directly to households and businesses bypassing fiscal authority. However, that does not mean that helicopter money wouldn't be subject to political pressures. Consider a fiscal authority that faced with high unemployment and a growing welfare bill was determined to force people into work through cutting unemployment benefits. This is something that both the US and the UK have tried. If an inflation targeting central bank decided to stimulate demand with CBDC helicopter drops in order to raise inflation's target. It would actually conflict directly 
with the fiscal authority's desire to uh, reduce unemployment by cutting welfare benefits, because it would, in effect, be partly replenishing the money that was being withdrawn from unemployed people and therefore reduce their incentives to work. We, then might, it might all come out in the wash, of course, because that kind of stimulus, demand stimulus might, um, by raising activity in the economy, um, create more jobs and encourage these people to work anyway. But I can see all manner of arguments and um, debates between the central bank and the fiscal authority about who is really in charge. Um, and I think it's a complication that we don't need. So I would say that helicopter money has fiscal and political consequences, and it needs to be used in cooperation with the fiscal authority rather than independently of it. It should be seen as a quasi-fiscal tool, really, because of its distributional effects. Now, in the last 18 months, most countries have done fiscal handouts of one sort or another, some of which amount to helicopter drops. The most obvious example is US stimulus checks, which were ostensibly fiscal drops, but actually pretty much financed by the Fed. And in the UK, the SAFE scheme to self-employed people, which was also a targeted fiscal drop, which was effectively financed by the by the central bank. And the reason for that was the scale of the QE programmes in both countries amounted to financing of the government deficit. And that brings me on to my second type of um, uh, people's QE, for want of a better word, which is central bank financing of government spending. This can be direct or indirect. Direct forms include ex-ante financing of government expenditure, like a trillion dollar coin, um, ex-post monetization of deficits, um, known to be inflationary, purchases of bonds in primary auctions. Indirect forms include purchases of bonds on secondary markets, direct purchases of bonds from government-sponsored agencies and public development banks, um, yield curve control, which I've included simply because of the additional fiscal space it creates for governments. If you've got a central bank in the market saying, I am going to keep control of the interest, rate, uh, interest rates on government debt along the yield curve, then the government can borrow a whole load more money for government spending. So I do regard that as a form of indirect government financing of governments. In the last 18 months, all Western central banks have indirectly financed their governments simply because of the scale of QE and other exceptional programmes. And I include in that the ECB, despite its prohibition of monetary financing under Article 123 of the Lisbon Treaty, the extent of the ECB's intervention in sovereign debt markets has in effect enabled sovereign governments, even including Greece, to spend far more than their fiscal space would otherwise have permitted. Some Western central banks have come close to direct financing of government expenditure. And if I give an example that was talked about very much at the time that it happened, the Bank of England, for example, stood ready to use the Ways and Means overdraft to finance the exceptional government expenditures in the early days of the pandemic. Admittedly, this was to prevent sudden very large debt issuance hitting built markets that were already very disrupted by pandemic fears. Um, but it nonetheless amounted to a commitment to finance the UK government directly if necessary, even if only overnight. And the Bank of England also said that it was considering intervening in primary auctions, although it didn't actually do so. So these are 
really large steps for central banks moving the agenda from oh no we don't get involved in in government financing really even indirectly even when we're doing QE to actually yeah we do when governments are doing extraordinary things and we have to support them and that has been a very considerable change of emphasis and one that I in the context of this particular crisis support so, but it is a massive experiment. Governments and central banks have thrown off all limiting constraints and distributed money on an unprecedented scale. They've done one way or another, everything I recommended in my book and more. It was an unprecedented crisis. There's never in history been a coordinated shutdown of large parts of the global economy. Governments were deliberately engineering the worst recession in 300 years because of public health emergency. They had to keep people alive and businesses afloat through the recession. Otherwise, what was the point of the shutdown? And central banks had to keep banks and markets functioning. And they had to prevent a public health crisis becoming a sovereign, sovereign debt crisis. It was an extraordinary time and it needed an extraordinary policy response. And so I don't in any way blame central banks for doing what they did, but we shouldn't be aware of the way in which it's kind of moved to the window, if you like. I think it's fair to say that these unprecedented infusions of money into the economy have worked. People have stayed alive during the recession. And although many businesses have failed, many more have survived than otherwise might have done. And although innovated, it's much lower than was predicted. Um, it's probably fair to say that there was a degree of cognitive dissonance in the central bank's reaction function. I, I did find it a bit weird that central banks were talking about stimulating demand while um, governments were deliberately shutting down demand. Um, and it's fair to say that a lot of the money that central banks and even governments put into the economy, rather than being spent, was actually saved, as might have been expected. It was the reason why I opposed helicopter money in the early stages of the pandemic was I felt that it was a direct demand stimulus and the money was simply going to be saved. And I think time has proved me right on that. So now as we emerge from the pandemic, now we're finding that some of that saved money is starting to come into the economy. Um, and that's raising, raising demand. Um, and we don't know how much of it is going to come into the economy, we don't know what effect that's going to have on inflation over the medium term. What we do know is that um, despite the support that governments and central banks provided to businesses, the supply side is damaged, um, supply chains are very disrupted, um, and we've also got um, you know, rebound base effects, we've had um, production is well below pre-pandemic norms, we've got um, uh, particularly oil prices and gas prices fell catastrophically last year when demand collapsed, um, producers cut production, it hasn't ramped up again. So we've got supply and demand imbalances, we've got all manner of things going on. I did do some, some charts for you just so you get the idea. This is one from Goldman, which just shows how um, in the US the kind of things that are contributing to the inflation we're seeing now. Um, and this one, which is perhaps more interesting this is the uk showing the different components and you'll see with both of these how much um, oil and gas prices are contributing to inflation and um, good shortages due to supply disruptions and my absolute favorite chart at the moment which is this one which is the baltic dry 
showing just how much shipping is, has been disrupted. I mean, the, the price of the Baltic dry has shot up and is now collapsing again. So all of those tend to indicate that this is supply side inflation due to global conditions, which may be quite insensitive to central bank actions anyway, and which we hope will be short-lived. What we don't know is how much of that is concealing a longer-term effect of just an awful lot of money sloshing around in the economy, and whether the supply side can ramp up production sufficiently to mop that up without central bank action. And I guess that central banks are watching this fairly hard. Um, I do... So myself, I think that we're going to have inflation for a range of different reasons, one of which is the exceptional amount of money that's been put into the economy. I said in my book that, that you know, helicopter money and um, uh, central bank financing governments would raise inflation. And indeed, that was kind of the point. Um, the question is whether it raises it too much and then what central banks do about it and will they react quickly enough and uh, i said at the moment we just don't know and so my conclusion from this is that the experiment we've had in the last 18 months is not over that in a way we're moving into the most difficult time of all which is having got ourselves into this into this situation where central banks have got the biggest balance sheets in history and there's all sorts of money um, sloshing around in the economy that may or may not um, raise CPI inflation. Um, how do we get out of this? And into the mix comes, um, I guess, what I was saying earlier about having created expectations in a way that central banks will intervene, will, will do more to finance their governments that, you know, a, a worry that I have that um, everything that I've recommended for exceptional times, um, helicopter money, central bank financing of governments, all the rest of it will come, become normalized. And this is where I depart from MMT and why I was a bit kind of uh, when um, Ed introduced me as an MMT commentator, because I actually don't agree with MMT that um, central bank financing of governments or rather governments just spending and um, running deficits should be normal. I think it's these are tools for exceptional times. These are tools for pandemics and recessions and financial crises and these kind of things when everything goes pear-shaped and we're trying to minimize the damage and get ourselves out of it as quickly as possible. I don't think this is how we should be running economies in normal times. And so we need an exit plan. We need to know how we're going to get out of this. And at the moment, I'm not convinced that we have an exit plan. And I'm worried that we are seeing um, siren voices saying, maybe we don't need to exit from this. Maybe we can just slide gently into central banks, um, financing all manner of fiscal activities, including Green New Deals and stuff like that, without ever thinking what it is that we really want these tools to be used for and what the role of central banks really and versus fiscal authorities really should be. And that bothers me hugely because it seems to me unless we craft for ourselves an exit plan and make a clear distinction between central banks um, supporting the economy in exceptional times and central banks um, perhaps supporting fiscal authorities for specific initiatives, but only as part of a clear mandate, um, we could end up in the exit crashing our helicopters. And I will leave you with a nice picture of a crashed helicopter.
and a, a, a nice cornfield uh, by the it local. It's so nice, isn't it? it? It is indeed. Thank you, um, Francis. I'll just wait for you to um, bring your screen down. Thank you. Thank you very much for that presentation. Apologies for slightly misdescribing what you're an exponent of, and thanks for clarifying that. Um, uh, Kevin, uh, over to you. Thank, thank you, Ed. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my thanks to Cato for the invitation to speak. Um, I'd like to take my cue really from the conference theme, of populism and the Fed. And before getting into that, I'd like, if I may, to share my screen. Um, yeah, that should be everybody being able to see it. Um, oh, I can't move the thing. Just a minute. Yeah. Um, so um, let's first consider the context. Um, the context to me is the aftermath of the GFC and the Fed's, the Fed's exit problem, namely how to raise rates without crashing the financial system, which is addicted to Fed support. So that to me is the main issue here. Um, looking forward, we have the disappearing line between fiscal and monetary. We see the Fed has acquired quasi-fiscal policies while its independence is undermined. Uh, we have populist demands for the Fed to print money to obtain supposedly free goodies. I mean, the Green New Deal comes to mind or whatever. <clears throat> and we have the illusions of free money and a magic money tree. And we have attendant dangers of high inflation and eventual fiscal default. And then look at the various policies being suggested. It's not just helicopter money and QE, but higher deficits, continued low rates, MMT, NERP, abolition of cash, central bank climate policy, and central bank digital currencies. From the perspectives of someone who wants good money, this looks to me like a freak show. In one way or another, these threaten the, found, the core foundations of a free society and in many ways. CBDCs are especially dangerous as they could give the government complete control over all spending. And CBDCs entail the creation of weaponizable money with totalitarian implications. Now, one possibility is simply more deficit spending. This would, the problem with this is that it would increase the government's debt GDP ratio and further shift the benefit, the burden of paying for current government spending onto current, onto future taxpayers. So this obviously entails major intergenerational equity issues. It could also undermine government solvency in the long run. The ratio of federal debt and entitlements to GDP is already at unprecedented levels. Oh, I'm sorry, I completely forgot to move my slides. Um, unprecedented levels and rising fast. Another possibility is continued low rates. Um, I think Francis already alluded to some of the issues here. Um, these would go further this would further aggravate the damaging effects of low rates so far. They would further stimulate the everything bubble and lead to even more risk-taking leverage and debt. 
they would also worsen the damage already done to savers pension funds and capital allocation. Then we have more QE. So basically the QE in my mind entails the preferential credit allocation policy, which is bad. And we have here a nice quote from Larry White. <clears throat> basically QE is a kind of central planning in which Fed officials substitute their judgments for the financial markets about the right prices and flows of funds. It throws good resources after bad. It incentivizes socially unproductive lobbying efforts and creates tremendous moral hazard and an environment ripe for cronyism. Um, it also raises the issue of fiscal dominance, the risk that the Treasury will eventually call the shots over monetary policy. Not to mention, so basically then QE becomes fiscal QE. I think that's been nicely discussed throughout the conference. And there's also the issue that QE itself, in my mind, was the greatest backdoor Wall Street bailout of all time, at least before COVID came along. Then we've got helicopter money. So I see this as a policy in which the central bank prints money physically or electronically, doesn't matter, and gives it away to private parties or the government. Now, helicopter money might seem to be free, but it isn't. Um, to an economist, free means there's no opportunity cost. But helicopter money always has an opportunity cost. A drop to the public is fiscally equivalent to a tax cut because people can use the helicopter money to pay taxes. And a helicopter drop to the government is merely, in my mind, an issue of transfer pricing within the public sector where the public sector is considered to include the central bank. So in this case, a helicopter, Helicoptered money dropped on the government is simply transferred at a zero price. So helicopter money creates the illusion, but not the reality of free money. This creates political demands for free handouts and undermine, this undermines Fed independence, especially if the Fed acquiesces and gives into this pressure. Now, um, I would also say that helicopter money involves a drop, a helicopter drop, I've alluded to this before, uh, involves the Fed engaging in redistribution and redistribution is fiscal. Okay, and there's a nice quote from David Stockman. He says, QE is a central bank power grab that insinuates unelected central bankers into the heart of the fiscal process. The framers delegated the powers of the purse to the, to the elected branch of government because the decision to spend, tax and borrow is the very essence of state power and should not be removed from popular control. Okay, so there we have the sort of mixing of, of fiscal and money, fiscal and monetary. Now MMT, I see it as the, um, the government spending a lot financed by printing base money. Advert Advocates claim that the government cannot default because it can always finance its spending by printing more money. Um, and we're told, of course, that uh, deficits don't matter. So there's a lot of sort of fiscal insouciance going on here. Um, 
Well, I would tell you, I would assure you that the government can default and that fiscal, fiscal deficits do matter. Okay. Um, and to me, the MMT doesn't work because it doesn't scale. Okay, so first, the scale of government spending is way too large to be financed by printing money without triggering high inflation. And secondly, my simulations suggest that MMT would likely lead to eventual uh, hyperinflation and government default. And a further problem is that MMT has no theory of the price level. It allows no role for any plausible explanation of the quantity of theory of money. Um, under MMT, a rise in inflation is to be counted by raising taxes. Now, this reminds me of my school economics. Um, the rate of growth of the money supply doesn't enter into it. I would say this is Flintstones era Keynesianism, and we know how that turned out. So MMT is not based on bedrock sound money principles. In a nutshell, MMT comes down to this. The government spends a lot, issues a lot of debt, and prints a lot of money. And it's not as if that hasn't been tried before. Then we come to NERP, negative interest rates. This has been put forward as a means to break through the zero lower bound and stimulate spending. But if a central bank were to push rates more than a little below zero, deposit holders would simply flee to cash. To avoid such an outcome, policy holder, uh, sorry, uh, policy makers would need to abolish cash. I think this is a very bad idea for all the reasons I've listed here. It would expropriate people's assets, deprive people of people of the benefits of cash. It um, enables digital payments providers to increase their charges. It causes problem. It would cause problems for vulnerable groups. It would make everyone dependent on fallible digital technology, and it would end what's left of financial privacy. Um, and there's a nice uh, quote from Jim Grant. Basically, it's about politics. The government wants to control your money. So let's go back to NERP. <clears throat> now, this entails a negative central bank base rate or deposit rate that pushes other rates down. Now, this was first tried by the Riksbank in 2009, um, and a few other countries followed suit. But these NERP experiments were only ever mild. Okay, the, net, the, the, the policy rate never went below minus 75 basis points. Now, push too far. Now, central banks didn't dare go further than that. Push too far, NERP risks major disruptions to the financial system. Um, but I have to say that NERP does not imply that all rates will become negative, however low policy rates will go. This is because the demand for positive rates will remain due to time preference and the productivity of capital. And also because it's easy to financially engineer positive rate instruments from negative ones. But the important point is this, from a policy perspective, NERP is self-defeating. It's advocated to promote stimulus but how could NERP ever be stimulative? NERP is a tax on bank deposits and no tax is stimulative. To quote 
Fed Governor Chris Waller, negative rates are a tax in sheep, sheep's clothing. And I agree. Negative rates are a fleece, but not a golden one. Empirical evidence confirms that NERP failed to stimulate and had adverse effects besides. Um, and two years ago, the Riksbank abandoned it as a failure. Um, so, um, now that climate change policy, should central banks get into, into this racket, as I would see it? Um, I, I suggest no. First off, they don't have the legislative mandates to do so. And second, they lack the competence to address long-term climate risks. They can't possibly know what to do. So we're talking pretense of knowledge here. They also lack the policy instruments for the long horizons involved. And I would say the measures proposed have no chance of success. They will burden the economy and weaken the financial system. And to me, central bank climate policy is another make-work project for regulators and consultants. I'd like to quote John Cochrane here. He says, central banks rushing headlong into climate policy is a mistake. It will destroy central banks' independence, their ability to fulfill their main missions, to control inflation and to stem financial crises, and it won't help the climate. A central bank in a democracy is not an all-purpose do-good agency with authority to defund what it dislikes and force banks and companies to do the same. The point, of course, is not to say um, that nothing should be done about climate. I'm, I'm merely suggesting here that whatever should be done should not involve central bankers taking a lead in it. Finally, CBDCs. At one level, CBDCs are harmless and pointless. Uh, central banks have been um, considering them for some time and one gets the sense that they don't really know what they're doing, they're, they're feeling their way along. Um, but I would like to consider CBDCs in their most potent form. Under this type of system, the central bank sets up a digital currency, compels everyone to use it, and abolishes substitutes like cash. Now, such a system entails seriously adverse effects on the banking system. These include the dangers of a major contraction in bank lending and having bureaucrats replacing bankers in the allocation of bank credit. So I don't see that working myself. But CBDCs have no end of undesirable policy uses. They could be used to implement NERP or as a vehicle for um, helicopter money. Um, if the central bank wants to boost spending, it could announce that it will cancel or tax money holders, money holdings to encourage people to spend more. Demand management then becomes demand control. If the central bank wants to reduce inflation, it can cancel some of the money it had created earlier. CBDCs offer new tools for climate policy. Um, so a, a central bank could apply differential rates. So ESG would get better rates and coal, diesel, fuel, tobacco, get penal rates. Now the 
we have the dark side uses of CBDCs. These are programmable monies and can be programmed to be weaponizable. So they be, could be programmed to cancel anyone's money holdings in an instant. They could be programmed to cancel, uh, sorry, this would in, CBDCs would entail total control potentially over all spending. They could be used to impose any political agenda to go after political enemies, real or imagined, or to punish people who express the wrong views. Now, punishment could vary from mild to outright cancellation, in which case the victim is cast out of the monetary economy to survive as best they can. And for those who like to control other people's lives, CBDCs make for a fantastic future lockdown tool. They could be used to ensure that people could only spend within a certain distance of their home, could only spend on approved items at approved times, and could be compelled to be jabbed. And as the ultimate accessory in digital totalitarianism, CBDCs could be used to implement CP, uh, communist Chinese social, uh, social credit policies. We might even say that CBDCs were concocted in hell by Satan himself. I'll mention that. So let me come to a close. Recall first that central banks had straightforward mandates in the past, mainly to deliver monetary and financial stability. These are not difficult tasks to perform, but they couldn't even do those properly. So now they're saying, give us more to do and we promise to deliver. Yeah, sure. The problem is that central banks are trying to do too much. Mervyn King said 21 years ago, I tell you that our ambition at the Bank of England is to be boring. Fast forward to the present and Dr. King has this to say, the global financial crisis and its aftermath greatly expanded the role of central banks. Central banks became the only game in town. Central bankers responded willingly, moving into the political arena and risking their independence. Now I would go further. By stepping into the political arena, they voluntarily surrender their independence, but independence works both ways and is not a flag of convenience. By taking on tasks they are unsuited to carry out, we can be certain that central banks will fail to deliver. And if, we, if we are to have central banks at all, and I would much rather we didn't, then let's keep their mandates to the minimum and expect even less. As far as central bankers are concerned, keep it simple, keep it clear, and remember that boring is best. And thank you all. And over to you, Ed. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Kevin. I'll just wait for you to get rid yep. of your slide. Okay, thank, thanks so much. Well, that's uh, your quote from hell is going to stick with me. Uh, we've definitely had some different views here. We've only got uh, 20 minutes or so, and there are a number of questions, but I wanted, as I warned you at the beginning, to pose um, just, just uh, some naive questions from, from the non-initiated or on their behalf um, before we get to the questions that have been posed online. Um, Francis, let me let me start with, with you. Um, if, 
I'm right in thinking, I mean, whether you're a full adherent to MMT or not, and I appreciate you're not, but if I'm right in thinking that the regulate, the ultimate regulator of helicopter drops um, and of these extraordinary Fed operations that we've been discussing is inflation, that inflation is really the regulator, then wouldn't the time to stop be now? Um, with over 6% inflation in, in the US, recent number, and 5% in the UK. And my second question, uh, just uh, very briefly, is Saul Omarova, as you know, has been nominated to be controller of the currency. If Robert Hockett were here, I think he could answer this. But she's you know, recommended famously people's accounts at the, at the Fed. Um, how would you comment on that? Okay, first one first. Um, inflation. Um, I, I slightly cut what I was going to say because I actually haven't answered that. <laughs> um, I need to remind central banks that their concerns should be medium term inflation, not near term inflation. That's not to say you don't have an eye to near term inflation, but particularly in the aftermath of something as extraordinary as this, your inflation metrics are really quite distorted. I talked a little bit about the what's going into inflation at the moment because I've actually looked at this in some detail. Um, and I personally, if I was a central bank, would be saying I'd be concerned about signaling. Um, so I might say, yes, I might want to taper off consider a tapering off QE and removing the um, interest rate cuts that were put in place at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, we need to send a signal the emergency is over and it's time to think about getting back to normal. Um, but I would be concerned that doing that might raise an expectation of tightening faster than would be necessary, given medium term inflation expectations at the moment really aren't that unhinged. Um, you know, if you're looking at five year, five years, you're still looking at only two to three percent. So it does kind of raise the question of why, given that it's that medium term outlook for inflation that central banks target, not the near term, why you would have a knee jerk reaction now to a very, very disrupted um, set of inflation metrics. And I would personally want to remind people that in 2011, when we actually had a similar um, dynamic in, in, in oil and in oil prices, particularly where we'd had a, a, a crash and then a rebound um, and a rebound to somewhat higher than before um, for all manner of reasons. And it was partly due to QE, to be honest. Um, the ECB actually raised rates and in so doing managed to contribute to triggering, triggering a sovereign debt crisis. So I think we have to be a little careful not to repeat the mistakes of the past. So I would rather that um, central banks were looking at medium term inflation expectations rather than near term inflation spikes. Slowly and carefully would be good. On, my, on your second point, Ed, just quickly. Um, I'm actually very wary um, I share a lot of Kevin's concerns about CBDCs and really with, with this kind of opening the central bank um, accounts to households and businesses amounts to the same thing in many respects that um, you're creating, a, you're kind of creating a kind of a gauze bank. Um, you've got an all singing, all dancing, one bank to rule them all um, for all transactions. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily a very healthy thing for an economy to have. Um, uh, when I've looked at CBCs, I've, I've looked at them rather differently from that. I think that they have potential to act as, as collateral in financial markets and things like that. Um, I'm not really convinced by this idea that a CBDC should replace the role of, of existing payment mechanisms 
um, for households and businesses. Thank you. Uh, and again, this promised two sort of rapid fire, but fairly naive questions um, to, to Bill. Um, uh, the first of which is if deficits are so dangerous, um, why have yields collapsed over the last 20 years? And, and the second is, I guess, a little bit of an elaboration uh, that the cr criticisms of QE that the collateral beneficiaries are those who least need it, and um, that um, the asset owners have, have done spectacularly well, inequality has been worsened and demand hasn't been most effectively boosted, and that the way of doing the same thing more equitably is to do the kinds of helicopter um, drops that Francis has been talking about. What is wrong with that? Uh, you're muted. Uh, so I, I guess um, I, I didn't think that, I mean, I didn't, I'm not, I don't have a view that deficits are bad. I think deficits uh, uh, depend upon the situation. I, I didn't assert that they were bad. Um, and I would say, you know, interest rates are as low as they are because we've had a very long period where short-term rates have been low. And we, we, we experienced a very gradual recovery coming out of the global financial crisis, which was gradual in large part because recoveries from financial crises tend to be gradual because the economy needs to needs to repair the damage that was done to the financial system before growth can really get underway. So there were a lot of misunderstanding about the process that caused inflation and a lot of kind of uh, false alarm caused by those who thought that the Fed's uh, QE itself would cause inflation. But in fact, uh, so, so there's built into the system a lot of people who who uh, who cried out that there would be inflation ended up, you know, sort of being incorrect. And so I think that people may have taken too much signal from that experience and and be applying that to the current situation. The current situation is quite different. There there already is inflation, and if the Federal Reserve, if that inflation doesn't uh, return back down to two uh, percent as as the bottlenecks pass. If there does become an established sort of a wage price spiral, then the Federal Reserve is in a very different situation than it was in previous recent previous sort of soft landings over the last decade. They actually have to get interest rates up above uh, the neutral rate to impart uh, monetary restraint on the economy, and they'd have a lot of a lot of uh, they'd have quite a distance to go. So I would say rates are low now in large part because of that. That experience of that long experience with low rates and with um, quiescent inflation, but that isn't necessarily an indication that that's what the future is going to hold. Um, your second question, I think, was: isn't aren't helicopter drops uh, less of a distributive problem than than QE? So, um, I I I actually I, I think that the way uh, uh, Ben Bernanke described it, and indeed the way. Francis described it. Um, the helicopter drop is, in fact, quite distributive in nature, but it's just it's. But nevertheless, it it cedes the choices about distribution to the fiscal authority, which is where it belongs. Uh, in in you know in in Ben's example, um, the the money is used to finance a tax cut and and a, and, a, and an expenditure program. Decisions made by Congress, um, and I, I actually QE. Um, I don't really see as distributive any more than any any adjust QE, the intention of QE, and it's unfortunate sort of a misnomer. At the Fed, we always wanted it to be called long, you know, LSAPs, large-scale asset purchases, because to distinguish what, what we were doing, what the Fed when I was at the Fed uh, 
was doing from what say how the Bank of Japan envisioned their actions. Uh, the objective was to purchase longer term securities to get duration out of private hands and therefore lower longer term rates in really very similar way to how they would lower short term rates with exactly the same mechanism to uh, stimulate the economy, lower shorter rates, encourage consumption now rather than consumption later. Uh, so, uh, so in that sense, I don't think it is really inherently uh, more distributive than any kind of monetary policy. So I guess I'd say I don't think either place an inappropriate necessarily place an inappropriate role of, of distribution on the Fed. Now, when you look at some of the proposals for QE, where the Fed, where the idea would be that the Fed would not only would would, would be making choices about which individuals uh, are worthy of getting the money and which which aren't, well, that's clearly. Uh, distributive and it's quite inconsistent with the principles for its balance sheet management that the Fed has articulated back in 2000 when it thought it was going to run out of treasury securities and more recently during the global financial crisis with the Fed treasury accord. In both instances, the Fed's second objective after monetary control was to you know be neutral in terms of credit allocation. Thanks very much, Bill. And 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 very briefly, Kevin, because then I want to very quickly get to some of the questions we've got online. Um, I mean, you describe a pretty dystopian world uh, in which, you know, if, if the Fed gets uh, into digital currency, then, you know, it suddenly turns into Xi Jinping and is controlling all our lives. Let me just ask um, for from the point of view of uh, a counterfactual, if the Fed hadn't existed, um, or if um, it had for, for, shown forbearance and not um, conducted QE in, in after the global financial financial crisis, or indeed uh, in the pandemic, what what do you think the world would have looked like? You're mute. You're muted. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> it depends what the Fed would have done. Is the short answer. Um, I think they had to do something. They had to support the markets primarily, but I, I think um, some, some level of QE, fine. Um, lowering of interest rates, fine. Um, but the uh, once whatever support they had, I mean, traditionally, um, a central bank would um, throw the, the weaker institutions to the wolves uh, whilst corralling the others together to protect the system. And some some strategy along those lines would have been what I would have preferred. And it's the kind of thing that happened before central banks uh, came along, such as in the clearinghouse system before the Fed was invented. Thank you. Um, Orkun Online asks, how long do you think QE can last as a policy tool? Do you think it is a sustainable policy in the long run? Um, I mean, I, I think there are going to be different answers on this, but let me put it to Francis. Well, interestingly, um, I don't know if you realise this, I'm actually not a great fan of QE. Um, I actually think it has been much misused. Um, I would prefer to see Q, QE reduced to being what it should have been originally, which is a crisis tool. Um, it's very effective at arresting the kind of debt deflationary spiral that could have formed in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, nearly formed in March 2020. We don't talk about that enough, actually, and did form, of course, in 1929. Um, it's effective at 
capacity prices and preventing that kind of collapse. And those collapses are disastrous. So in that respect, it is a good tool for um, you know, protecting the economy from those these kind of crises. Where I think it has been much misused was in the belief that it could go beyond that and actually restart growth. And I don't think it can, unless fiscal policy is pulling in the same direction. For much of the last 10 years, we've had fiscal policy pulling in the opposite direction from QE. And because QE has different distribution effects from fiscal policy, very often, or certainly if fiscal policy is targeted at bottom end of the income distribution, which uh, the consolidation over the last 10 years generally was, um, QE cannot offset it fully. And so um, you end up doing an awful lot of QE um, for really very little effect. And all you're really doing is just softening the impact of your fiscal consolidation. I would say that that is a misuse of QE. And I don't think we should be using it in that way. And I would not like to see it used that way again. There is a wider problem, which is the extent to which financial markets have become used to um, an ample reserves um, scenario. And that kind of plays to Bill's comments about the floor system, really, and about whether we should be looking to reduce that excessive reserves and um, returning to more of a corridor system um, so that uh, it, such as we had before the GFC. The, this is kind of a politician, but I have some sympathy for that as well, that would be good if we could start to wean markets off these sort of constant in, in injections of money. Uh Thank you for that, Francis. Um, maybe Bill could answer this one. Um, Peter online asks, would central bank digital currencies have helped the pandemic response? Well, I think one of the one of the one of the uses that is often pointed to for central bank uh, digital currency is that it would uh, facilitate the, the federal the payments by the federal government to households it would have made them somewhat faster um, so in that sense I suppose if, if that had been in place uh, it, it would have but I'm just not sure how much greater that those few days of extra um, of extra time to to get individuals to have the funding would have would have been available one in, in some ways it, it could have uh, it could have added to the challenges faced by the Fed during the uh, the, the COVID response. Uh, I'm sorry, the question was about whether it would have helped during the COVID response last year. Uh, in that part of the, one of the characteristics that one of the sort of really unstable, the destabilizing events that happened was in March of 2020 and, and, and into early April, there was an extraordinary flight to cash uh, that took place even out of treasury securities a lot of that ending up in bank deposits, which helped, which helped would allow banks to fund very large draws on their lines, uh, their 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 business lines at that time, um, which is one of the reasons why it's it's actually, uh, you know, a, a good design to have uh, deposit taking and and loan making in the same institution. But had there been CBDC, widespread CBDC, uh, then that flight of quality would almost surely have been into CBDC. Uh, so because that's the perfectly safe place to, to go. Had that happened, that would have been money exiting the banking system, which would have made it much harder for banks to serve as the, the shock absorbers that they did in March. Moreover, the CBDC is another liability of the Federal Reserve System. So it would have simultaneously resulted in a, in a massive reduction in reserve balances, 
which would have been extraordinarily difficult for the Federal Reserve to manage very quickly, which is one of the challenges actually of having CBDC is it can make monetary policy conduct much more complicated because of the huge swings that could result very rapidly in, in reserve balances. Uh, thank you. Squeeze in uh, two very rapid questions before wrapping up. Um, uh, um, Kevin, um, uh, Moira asks, can helicopter money affect inflation spurred, created, I guess, by supply issues? Well, I, I come at this uh, as a monetarist, that uh, essentially we look at uh, the rate of growth of money supply, the broad money. Um, but I'm not saying that supply issues are irrelevant, especially for the reasons that Francis has indicated. So that's a kind of indirect answer that I can give to that question. Uh, well, that was admirably brief, um, uh, which which gives uh, a question, I think, that probably Francis is best, but all of you can chip in, but Francis, I'll post you first. Jim um, asks, in a perfect helicopter drop, does it matter what the, the money is spent on? Does it matter if uncertainty leads some portion of the public to save rather than spend? So first, Francis, but if uh, Bill and Kevin want to chip in, please do. I'll give a very quick answer, which is that um, it's it's all about aggregates. Um, rather than looking at individuals, you need to look at the aggregates. So um, if you're doing a pure helicopter drop um, in order to stimulate demand, you need enough people to spend it to move demand. You don't need everyone to. So it actually doesn't matter if some people save it. And there's some evidence actually from fiscal drops, um, like those done in Australia during the during the um, great financial crisis that um, you can actually have quite a few people saving um, and you still have enough people um, spending it to move demand. It, it does actually work, um, but it very much depends upon uncertainty and the particular circumstance why I said this is the wrong time in the early part of the pandemic was that actually people couldn't spend the money because the, because the economies were being shut down. So it was actually completely the wrong time to do hel helicopter money and I will die on this hill. <laughs> I would agree with Francis there, and the, um, there's a parallel here with NERP, as NERP has led to increased saving, um, which is a kind of bizarre effect, but could be related also to the uncertainty of the policy. But the bottom line is, it doesn't matter if people save more. It's up to them. Yeah, would you like I, would, I, would, I would actually agree. It's, it's, it's as Francis has just said, it's, it's about the aggregates. So, you know, the heli helicopter drop would be, is, is a tool that you would use to cause inflation when you have no other tools left that would work. It's rather extreme. But the point would be, you'd be taking an action uh, that to support, say, a fiscal expenditure for which there then wouldn't be some corresponding tax in the future uh, to pay it back. So it would, to, so it would very likely generate inflation. Uh, well, there the, the may, the may not be magic money trees, but it's a pretty magical outcome to get three of you agreeing at the end of this on that question. And I feel um, slightly less, well, considerably less ignorant than when, than when we started. So thanks to all three of you for a really interesting discussion. Um, and um, now I think I hope on time um, to turn over to, to, to George Shelgin um, uh, at Cato to wrap up today's wonderful conference with his closing remarks. Thank you to, um, to all three, three of you and best wishes to, to Bob Hockett. Well, folks, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's it for this year's monetary conference. Uh, 
I'm just here to uh, ask you to uh, join me in once again giving all of our speakers a, a round of virtual applause for their extremely valuable insights on the potential implications of various pop populist movements for current and future monetary policy. Uh, while it's of course uh, only proper to thank speakers uh, at events uh, like this, it's also true that experts generally consider speaking at such events uh, a labor of love. They, what they don't get a chance to say here why they, they might be shouting from some rooftops tomorrow. So uh, it's really uh, the people we most need to thank for today's event are the ones who've been working with us behind the scenes. These include our fine conference crew led by Kiana Graham, our AV team led by David Tassi, and Nick Anthony, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives manager, who's responsible for keeping all these different moving parts properly oiled. Uh, so let's thank all of them, uh, or let me uh, thank all of them on behalf of all of us once more. And last, but certainly not least, we must thank Jim Dorn, who for 39 years has come up with outstanding programs and speakers for the annual monetary conferences. And this one seems to me uh, certainly not to have been an exception to that rule. And now uh, let me pass the podium on to Jim, uh, who uh, will have uh, the last word. Jim. Yeah, I just, uh, thanks, George. Uh, appreciate uh, your nice comments. And I just uh, wanted to also thank the speakers and the moderators and staff and also the Durrell Foundation and the Bowen Family Foundation uh, for sponsoring this conference. Uh, I should mention that the papers will be published early next year in a book uh, that I'll be editing. And I'm looking forward to that. I think it'll be a great volume. And I hope you'll join us next year actually for the 40th Annual Monetary Conference. And I wanna wish everyone a very happy Thanksgiving and uh, hopefully we'll see you next year. Thanks again. <laughs>